Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello and good morning. This is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with a gentleman who really needs a little introduction within our Mohs Surgery community, Dr. Barry Leshen. Um, Dr. Leshen is a founder and partner of the Skin Surgery Center in Winston-Salem in Greensboro, North Carolina. He is a clinical professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Wake Forest University and well-known to all of us as the president of the Mohs College. Barry, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. Uh, Thomas, thanks so much for the kind invitation. Real honor to participate with you. Now, those of you who have listened to us in the past know that we've had an emphasis predominantly on research publication and inviting those who have authored those publications. But I think we're at a point now within our podcast where we can expand what we do and really learn from, from people at different parts of their careers, um, learn about what motivates them, what lessons they've learned and can share with uh, the rest of the community. So I, uh, I warned Barry ahead of time that some of this will feel a little bit like a uh, stereotypical job interview for him. So I want to talk with you, Barry, in sort of different categories of your life, from your transition in, in academics versus being in private practice, from the challenges and what you learn as an ACMS president, and then maybe together we can highlight some of the main priorities of the Mose College going forward. So because we know you best as president of the ACMS, I want to learn more about what that year has been like for you in that role. And I'll just let you take it away with that very broad question. Thanks, Thomas. I would say that this year has been an absolutely incredible year of learning for me. Uh, truly, it's been the greatest honor of my career uh, to be president of the college. Uh, this organization has been my professional home for 33 years. It's the place where my close professional colleagues are, and it's where the bulk of the educational activities that have been meaningful to me over the uh, span of my career. So the year's been uh, terrific. I feel that uh, there have been a lot of things that have happened during the year uh, that have been meaningful to be involved with. Uh, some people have asked me, well, what did you accomplish during the year? And I really don't view it as accomplishments. There, I feel like these were things that mostly happened while I was president. The things that uh, come to mind, and they're top of the mind now because I just wrote April's president's message. As I think back upon the year, uh, improving wisely had another edition. Uh, in June when distribution to members of their percentage of cases on trunk and extremities, I think we're going to find some meaningful impact on utilization of MOS codes from that. 
uh, board certification went through during the year, and that was certainly uh, the culmination of a lot of effort by a lot of folks, and and one that uh, we all should view as an important milestone for all of us. One of the things that we did, the board made a courageous decision, I felt, in its October uh, meeting when we uh, went forward with the concept that there would be no exemptions for the fellowship matching program. We felt that this would even the playing field for fellow applicants, give them an opportunity to see more programs, and in turn give the fellowship program directors an opportunity to see all the applicants and feel that it's going to be a win-win. Uh, looking forward to, to seeing that get implemented over the coming matching year. Uh, Mosaic got rolled out. Uh, it's a culmination of a lot of work by many folks over several years. Happened this year under Howard Rogers' leadership. It's going to be a very important, I think, initiative within the college. And uh, Mosaic has already grown up some in that it received qualified clinical data registry status from CMS, uh, another important milestone. Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of, Thomas, is conversations in most surgery. I mean, you have really taken the ball and run with it. I look forward to every one of the episodes. And what I'm seeing from the data is that many members share that opinion. So I, I view that as one big success of the year. Uh, we relaunched the slide review program. I think this is meaningful for all of the members to have an opportunity to have their slides critically reviewed. And it's especially important for our fellowship training programs, as that is a requirement of the RRC. And finally, uh, an important thing uh, for me was the ACMS Foundation. This has really morphed and growing up and getting a life of its own. And uh, so rewarding to me to see that traction develop and see the prospects of it for its impact over the coming decade. Those are the things that come to mind for me. Wonderful. Those are sort of exactly the bullet points I have when I think of what's happened in the Mose College over the past year and, and things that certainly you and, you know, this huge group of a very dedicated individuals have accomplished. And, you know, I just consider my little role on things like the slide review committee or the mosaic registry. And it's just these are monumental tasks that our members are accomplishing while being incredibly productive physicians in their community. You know, to me, that sort of leads us into a little segue of time management um, between your various leadership roles. Do you have any pearls on on time management? Is it saying no to some things and saying yes to others? Or, or how do you manage time between research and leadership and direct patient care and administration? Well, it's a good question, Thomas, and I think it's something that we all struggle struggle with, and everyone has their style. Uh, for me, the thing that has surprised me a bit as I took on this leadership role is the continuous stream of emails and phone calls, and everyone deserves close attention. So I, I try to stay on top of these things and not let my inbox get piled up with messages, respond as quickly as possible. It's, uh, it's a struggle sometimes. Uh, the evening conference calls are challenging at the end of a long, hard day. But again, uh, the discipline of not scheduling too many in a week so that you can maintain a focus uh, throughout the entire call. 
I don't know that I have any magic for it. I, I know that it, it's a challenge, and I would add to the challenges to have the enriching clinical activities that we all have, uh, the meaningful clinical enterprise that we're all involved in, to be in a leadership role of an organization that I love, and at the same time, leave something in the tank for our loved ones at home. And uh, it's a priority. And unfortunately, uh, those that we love at home sometimes uh, carry the brunt in terms of there's just so many hours in a day. So it's just something we have to be mindful of. And certainly, uh, I've learned a lot over the past year on how to manage those priorities. And it's it's constant, right, between family and, and work. Um, I, I agree with you that probably none of us have the solution. As you look back on sort of a career of leadership and sort of founding a practice, what prepares somebody for your type of leadership in medicine? What advice can you give those um, like myself who graduated fellowship within the last five years or who will be graduating fellowship but already see the most college as their future home and, and their desire to help lead in the future? Well, Thompson, that's a good question. I I think that the answer to it probably is different for everyone. I I know as I approached the beginning of the uh, leadership year, I did a fair amount of introspection as to how was it that I would be using my skill set to make the biggest impact during the year. And I felt that what I could bring to the present year, my strengths were more on an executive function. It is communication. And an example of that is I needed to establish at the beginning some priorities for the year. So started out by communicating with folks that I viewed as thought leaders. I mean, it's important for anyone to assemble a group of go-to folks that when you're in a not only a crisis, but in an important decision point, uh, that you have resources to go to. And at the beginning of the year, I went to folks that I viewed as thought leaders and, and said, what, what would you do? What do you think are priorities for the year? And certainly made uh, notes of those. And, and then there were plenty of folks, colleagues and friends, who were very comfortable in expressing to me what they felt would be good areas to focus on. And I took all of those very seriously and tried to execute on the ones that I could execute on. Uh, so I, I think the bottom line is uh, you have to dig deep, do some introspection, and figure out what your strengths are and go to them uh, as you develop a leadership style. I, I think that's that's very true. And certainly what you say about you know thought leaders really extends to just general mentorship. And I've always been told if you can have your own sort of mental board of directors, people who help you in various avenues of your life, People you can bounce things off of. They don't need to be dermatologists. They don't need to be most surgeons. They can be in the in the private world, in the academic world, but just people who who have the common sense and the life skill. Because you know, the more I try my early exposure to leadership or or helping in the community, the more I realize that the problems we face in medicine are largely not unique to medicine. And when we look at financials and we look at management, when we look at healthcare. They're very similar problems to what the rest of the, the world faces as well in the private sector. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I also find that uh, in the leadership world, uh, very important to tap into the ideas of others through uh, books and, and articles on leadership. Uh, I find them inspirational. 
infrequently go to, to those sources. An example is Jim Collins from Good to Great. It's, it's almost like a Bible for me in, in terms of understanding uh, the mechanics of successful organizations. Well, I'm going to um, put you on the spot a little bit because that's sort of the classic leadership question if you had a book to recommend. And that's something that I ask all of my um, sort of inspirational leaders and colleagues. Tell us a little bit more about that, that book and, and the message there in case some of our colleagues want to pick up a copy. Jim Collins wrote this book, it may have been 15 or 20 years ago, and describes features of companies that were very good companies that went beyond being good companies and became exceptional companies and described the common features that were drivers of that. And, uh, you know, and I think a good example I can give you that comes up from time to time is that whatever organization you're in, it's important to establish a, a group, a team that helps accomplish the vision. Uh, he uses the metaphor as passengers on a bus and that, you know, sometimes you have a group of passengers on the bus and you're heading, everyone wants to go in the same direction and happy to be there. Sometimes people are not happy about it and it's time to stop the bus, let them off the bus. And sometimes people have to change seats on the bus, that is, go to different strengths. And uh, it's those sorts of metaphors and those sorts of lessons that just come up from time to time. And anyone interested in leadership, that, that is one book that I'd strongly recommend to pick up. And I agree. We can learn so much by some of those people who've really put a lot of thought into, into, into what they write. And we may get to a point on this podcast where that becomes a routine question. Be you know, What's the most impactful scientific manuscript you've ever read? Or what's the most impactful personal development and leadership book you've ever read? So um, I guess be on the lookout for that question in future podcasts. Right. I, I think it's a good one. Yeah. When you look ahead, sort of the conclusion of your tenure as ACMS president, and you fast forward over the next decade, what do you think are going to be the main challenges that Mo's as a specialty, the ACMS as a uh, governing body uh, face? I think that the primary challenge facing us is one of utilization. We are going to be more accountable for the costs in healthcare as providers, and there are going to be a number of external forces on us to be held accountable for them. And we, we know clearly that utilization is up for many reasons. Certainly, uh, skin cancer incidence is up, and that would be a big driver of it. But also, quite frankly, there are more most surgeons out there. And with more people doing most surgery, uh, it's, it's a resource that may be getting overtapped and payers will become more rigorous in terms of paying for it. So it's just uh, something we need to be mindful moving forward. I, I agree. And I think certainly improving wisely with you and John Albertini has really been on that pathway. We've now had two dedicated studies there in the sense of looking at number of most stages required and then the anatomic location of the, of the procedures being performed. Do you mind just summarizing those main findings? Because for some of our listeners, it may only come up when they're attending the Mohs College meeting. For others, it may be part of their routine um, academic performance review in a large hospital. If you can just sort of summarize in, in general terms what's been learned from that initiative. Yeah, so um, in collaboration with Robert Woods Johnson Foundation researchers and colleagues at Johns Hopkins, 
the Mose College has collaborated in this program, Improving Wisely, and using CMS data, uh, college members are apprised of where they stand on a spectrum of various parameters. What we've looked at so far is number of stages per case for head and neck cancers, and what was done was we identified an outlier group, those that were using more stages per case uh, for head and neck cancers, by educating them as to where they stood on the curve. Uh, what we have seen and what has been most gratifying by the program is that there's been a shift, a bending of the curve, so that many of the folks that were out there on the edge of being overutilizers or are using more stages uh, per case have started to use fewer. And it's a very gratifying thing. Physicians, by our nature, we don't want to be outliers in that way. And a simple matter of educating ourselves as to where we stand compared to our peer group can be a very meaningful way uh, of bending that curve. The the most recent addition of Improving Wisely was looking at percentage of cases on trunk and extremities. And this was something that was very surprising to me, that uh, it was in the 25% range for average number of cases that were trunk and extremities. And I found that to be a, a rather astoundingly high number. And what we're seeing preliminarily is that after that data was disseminated, the, the curve is being bent back towards fewer of our cases being trunk and extremity cases. So taking that particular example, I, I in my own practice, have a, a different approach. I, I think that it's very common, particularly as we get out of training, is to think of criteria as that, do the criteria allow me to do most surgery on this? Do, do they permit me to do it? And I think that the question needs to be reframed. And the question is, does this cancer need Mohs surgery? Uh, and I think until we reframe the question, uh, we're not going to get our arms around the overutilization. Moving forward with improving wisely, I think there are, there are many areas that we can look at. And one of the next areas that we'll likely take a look at is reconstruction, looking at issues such as complex versus intermediate closures and also looking at the distribution of flaps and grafts versus primary closure. I think all of these will be very meaningful to folks, particularly to the outliers. Uh, again, none of us as physicians really want to be an outlier on that end of the curve. Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And it's a really good way of, of educating people and um, a lot of us like myself, or just simply interested in, in the numbers and outlier or not, I like to know my average number of stages and my percentage of, of reconstruction and, and have my techs calculate that sort of thing uh, on a regular basis. Now, how much will that sort of data flow into the upcoming updates to the appropriate use criteria? Is there anything you can say ahead of publication about major changes we can expect there? Or? Yeah, I haven't really uh, been aware of any direct linkage between the Improving Wisely program and the AUC. It may well be taking shape. Uh, I, I think that the really pivotal ways that I see Improving Wisely being valuable is to us as individual physicians, those of us that may be in solo practice or we don't have peer review, internal peer review in our practices, that is to really know uh, where you stand uh, compared to benchmarks out there. 
And in practices in which there are multiple surgeons, such as our practice, we use that sort of data now so that we can, uh, there are nine surgeons in our group, uh, we can see within our own group where we fall. Uh, and I think that the data is, that we're developing on a national basis can be drilled down and used on a local basis as well. And I, and I think a lot of the initiatives are ultimately because we now have the opportunity to either check and police, I suppose, ourselves or have external sources doing that. And I think the Improving Wisely initiative, just as much as the Slide Review Committee, which is not a policing, but a quality control measure, right. um, are you know really exemplary of, of what good evidence-based and quality-conscious medicine is, you know? Well, Thomas, I agree with you. I think the quality is the buzzword here. I, we're going to be challenged in the years to come to demonstrate our value. And using established parameters such as those that are being established in the Improving Wisely program will be very meaningful to us uh, as we are asked to demonstrate our quality, demonstrating them through the metrics such as number of stages per case and have it already validated in the literature of the importance of this uh, will signal that you're appropriately utilizing the codes to people who are needing to know that, particularly payers. Uh, so, you know, the, the quality issue is key and we're going to be forced many times over to demonstrate that we're providing good value through the quality that we're delivering. Agreed. I uh, want to spend the last few minutes totally shifting gears and talking more about what you learned in terms of your actual clinical practice of medicine and founding a practice. Now, you founded your practice in 2000, 2001? 2001, yeah. What an interesting education this has been. I'll have to say I, I spent the first 14 or so years of my practice in full-time academic setting and then transitioned uh, to a private practice. And the education over the subsequent 19 years has been <laughs> remarkable to me. I, we're just not prepared for it. And the evolution has, uh, over the past 19 years, has been remarkable. I mean, I, I think now about practice management in particular into four key areas, um, revenue cycle management, human resource management, uh, regulatory and compliance issues, and information technology. And I can recall in, in years past in which uh, John Albertini, my partner, and I were called upon to make some very tough decisions and many times feeling not particularly well equipped to make decisions that would be, say, a, a new electronic health record where an investment might be uh, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And knowing that there was some sophistication out there beyond ours in making a meaning, good and meaningful decision. So, you know, one of the things that has happened in our own practice is that we have, we have been happy to see the management of our practice taken over by people who are truly expert in these areas. It has left us the opportunity to focus on things that we do best, which is taking care of patients. And those areas that are very complex, we are seeing being managed by, by people quite adept at them and doing a far better job than we ever did or would do, be doing now. So I, I think that the, the basic message there is uh, recognize your strengths, go to them, recognize your weaknesses as well. Uh, it's, it's the classic SWOT analysis of any business of 
analysis of strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And that was just a, a meaningful outcome for us in our practice. So knowing what you know now, if you think back 18, 19 years, what, what advice would, would Barry Leshen give a younger Barry Leshen as he's making that transition from academics or considering staying in academics or considering opening um, something new from the, from the ground up? Yeah. Any, any advice that can also help our uh, more junior listeners? Well, it's a great question. I, mean, I, I feel so incredibly fortunate as I look back upon my career I mean, to have had the opportunity to be in an academic environment where my career matured, uh, learning from colleagues, learning from residents, having an opportunity to train residents and fellows in a very stimulating environment, taking all the lessons learned from that environment and transferring them into a, a different setting. You know, someone really smart once said, everyone should change jobs in their 40s. And it's very hard for us as physicians to change jobs. We've spent an awful lot of time and energy and money uh, getting to the end of a training period. And change within a career just is not very realistic. In, in my situation, it was a career change to go from an academic setting to a private practice setting. For me, it was a chance to get greater control over my professional life. It was a key motivator. I have absolutely no regrets over having started in academics. It was a wonderful way and would encourage anyone inclined to do that uh, to look at it uh, as a career path. It's an incredibly stimulating place to be. In terms of the private arena, you know, I think that the, the practice management is a very complicated area, as I already mentioned. And there are many ways in which you can enter the arena of private practice without being encumbered by practice onerous practice management that you may not be particularly well equipped to take on. So I, I would just say be mindful. I mean, physicians, I think, are guilty of feeling like they can do anything. Uh, it's why, really, it's not such a good idea for physicians to be airplane pilots. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's the same situation with managing a practice. You have to understand that there are great complexities here, and the complexity grows by the year. So if you can enter a practice environment in which you can focus on what you do best, uh, which is take care of patients, that's what I would strongly encourage people to take a look at. Great. Barry, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I certainly want to thank our listeners for their attention. Uh, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Um, more importantly, please give us feedback. We want to know what our audience wants to listen to, whether you prefer the emphasis on scientific research or leadership, or you like the conglomerate and mix of, of ideas. So thank you for your attention. I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery. 